I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. This is episode one with Chris Pogue. Chris is the Chief Information Security Officer at Newex. He has more than 15 years experience and 2,000 breach investigations under his belt. Over his career, Chris has built and led multiple professional security service teams. His extensive experience is drawn from his careers as a cyber crimes investigator, ethical hacker, military officer, and as an instructor. Chris has been named a SANS thought leader, ran an award-winning security blog, The Digital Standard, and has been an author for multiple publications and books. Chris is just one of those guys in cybersecurity I knew I had to have on the show right out of the gate. He's an extremely bright guy and very passionate about information security. He's also a pleasure to talk to. A few years back, he coined the term and methodology sniper forensics, and it had a huge impact on the way I approach digital forensic investigations. In this interview, we discuss his start as a penetration tester, his transition from a tech to an executive, the people and books which have influenced him, training the right staff, the importance of communication skills, and much more. I hope you enjoy this interview with Chris Pogue. I'm sitting with Chris Pogue from NewX, CISO of NewX. Chris, thanks for uh, joining Cybersecurity Interviews. Hey, my pleasure, Doug. Glad oh, to be thanks. here. And you, seem, uh, and you and I have been talking for a little bit already today, but you still seem to be very passionate about doing cybersecurity after 15 years. What, <laughs> what, what keeps you interested in even uh, showing up for work every day? Uh, yeah, so a little bit of, uh, of, of my background, right? It's, um, this is honestly how I believe God created me, right? And so when you're in that flow of how you've been made and, and you can kind of play to that bend, it's really, uh, it's really easy to... to um, to be passionate about it because it's 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 what you were made to do, and so I can't I can't imagine doing anything else. And if I mean I know it sounds cheesy, but if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would still probably show up for work on Monday. Gotcha. What I mean, what what is the one kind of one thing that really part of your job that you find most rewarding about doing cybersecurity? What's the the thing that creates that change with you or somebody else? Um, so. The most exciting thing to me, having having served in the military for you know 13 years, and and you know just being wired to not like bad guys, um, catching bad guys is pretty awesome. Um, and it's either through our own work uh, as expert witnesses or as investigators, or um, through the companies that we empower and enable through our software. Um, catching bad guys is uh, it's it's pretty neat. Get you going every day. Nice. Yes. Um, well, tell me a little bit more about your background. I mean, I know you had a little bit of a military background and kind of went through different commercial iterations of, sure. of consulting. Sure. So I started off in the U.S. Army um, not doing anything technical at all. I was in the field artillery, and so I blew things up, which is awesome. Uh, I worked with multiple launch rocket systems, and so really reaching out and touching someone um, and, and making it go boom. Um, but I realized there's not a lot of future uh, opportunities for, for jobs outside of the military being an explosives uh, specialist. So not legally, uh, at least. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so and not one where I had I couldn't I didn't have to carry a weapon anymore. And my wife was was pretty keen on me not having a sidearm 
uh, anymore at work. So um, I moved into the Signal Corps, became a warrant officer, and started working um, with uh, Army Reserve in, in, uh, IOC, Information Operations Command, uh, Army IOC, and then the Western Information Operations Center. And so that was sort of the genesis of, of my journey. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that's when it really became clear that that was my bend. Um, and uh, so I started off doing that, um, did that for a number of years, and then um, got an opportunity to work at American Express uh, uh, Technologies in Phoenix. Um, worked there for, for several years. They ended up outsourcing their technologies to IBM. Uh, so I then surviving, I don't know, seven rounds of, of you know, quote unquote, resource actions, I think mm -hmm. is what IBM calls them. Um, but they were layoffs, and, and uh, so I survived. Um, and then on the internal job posting site for IBM, there was an opening for their, their penetration testing team. And so I thought, hey, this sounds really interesting. The security thing's kind of neat. Sort of what I was doing in the military, let's, let's give it a go. And so I uh, was able to, you know, to get that job, um, which was great. And then um, was a pen tester for about two years. I was just sort of an average pen tester. It wasn't really my thing, but I really did like security. Um, so there was one particular engagement um, where the forensics team needed a pen tester with them because it was a pretty advanced hack. And I happened to be the, the guy that got tapped. And so I went and, and I did that with the forensics team, and it was it was round peg, round hole. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I led the investigation as a pen tester, having never done an investigation before. Um, and my boss at the time uh, sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you want to do this full time? I'm, I, I, you know, I'll let you move over to the forensics team. Uh, and so I did that. I had a, the absolute pleasure of, uh, of mentoring under Harlan Carvey, um, which everyone knows Harlan and what a a tremendous resource he is in the in the forensics world, but I I was his protege for I mean, about two years, and he and I became you know pretty good friends. He's a he's a great guy, but I I probably learned ten years of forensics in those two years under Harlan, um, and then had an opportunity uh, after a few years on that IBM team to move over to to uh, Trustwave Spider Labs. Um, I was there for six years, ended up being the director of of Spider Labs for the U.S. Um, and then have been at Nuix now for little over two years. Um, started off as the senior vice president of cyber threats and then was just recently promoted, oh, about four months ago to the chief information security officer. And now you have a C title. And now I have a C title. <laughs> How's that transition been to be more from a, you know, or you, I guess let me ask it a different way. Do you still find yourself being very hands-on in your role or more corporate? You know, it's a tough transition, right? Because I'm sitting here now with my Jordans on, and uh, <laughs> I don't know any other CISOs that wear Jordans to, to work. So um, it's it's a bit of a transition from being a tech geek and wanting to be fingers on keyboard to being an executive and not that's not part of my job anymore. And so it's 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 tough, right? It's it's a little part of me feels like it's dying because this is what I hung my hat on for so long. Mm -hmm. But I understand that this is not what's going to propel me forward. There's actually a really great book um, called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And, and the concept is the skills and the abilities that you have that allow you to progress in your career. Once you get to the point of moving forward, they're not the same set of skills. And so I just, I have to let those you know, skills go, um, you know, sadly, but um, it gives me greater visibility into the organization at large. I get to use my experience working breaches uh, and, and honestly pen tests as well to build the security of Nuix to help us as a customer, uh, you know, as my internal customer to get more resilience, to increase our investigative capabilities and, and, and just to make us a more sound company, um, which is a journey like anything yeah. else, but uh, it's, it's been good so far. You mentioned uh, before Harlan Carvey being kind of a mentor to you in the field. Who were some of the other mentors that you had in, in kind of in your journey to where you are now? 
Uh, yeah, I, so I'm old, right? I'm 44, <laughs> so I'm going to date myself and the rest of the guys who I mentored with. Uh, so Harlan, obviously, I, I worked well with him. Um, Rob Lee, um, when he was at, at Mandiant um, and at the Sands Institute. Um, you know, Jesse Kornblum, Ovi Carroll. Um, these are all guys that, you know, when I came out, I, I did a lot of talk with Farmer Dude, right? Thomas Rude. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh, who else? Um, Oh, I worked with Corey Altide when we were at uh, IBM together, who's, who's written some fantastic books and works at Google now. Um, worked with Christian Gunderson on his Log the Timeline project. Uh, when it originally came out, I helped him write the install uh, documentation and get it running in Windows. So, again, that's sort of dating myself. Uh, Curtis Rose. Uh, just I, I had some great people that I was able to work with, and... Like I said, I'm old, so these are yeah. sort of all the old timers. <laughs> well, some of the stuff that I always found interesting as I kind of got into cybersecurity more focused about 10 years ago was the collaborative effect. Everybody kind of had no ego, no chips on their shoulder. You'd find them online. You'd find them in conferences. Literally ask them any question, and mm-hmm. they'd be almost enthralled and over-eager to help you. And I, th- yeah. I think that's one of the things that... I've been in IT security for many, for IT in general for years, but for security to find more collaborative than you do in other areas of tech. Have you found that to be the the same? Yeah, absolutely. And in in fact, a name I forgot to mention is Matt Shannon, who's the CEO of FResponse. And I remember when FResponse first came out, uh, you know, we had purchased it at IBM. And I can remember calling Matt from Hawaii, um, working on an investigation, and um, Matt was able to, you know, get a it was an old version of like sco linux and i was able to send him some data he wrote me a configuration file and we got it up and running and i mean this is the ceo of the company who's who's working with us to get it going so um yeah everyone i can remember having email conversations with jesse just about i mean something i felt embarrassed to ask and and jesse was always great about it and uh you know was um was uh you know friendly and and uh you know helped me out so yeah i think that's that's pretty common in the forensic space is is and, and even to this day right we still i still get questions or emails and i'm, I'm happy to help out sure. that next generation of investigator um you seem to be, at some at some point you did to kind of take that turn more into ir and forensics what kind of drew you into that subset of information security as opposed to sticking with pen testing um, I, I was really just an average pen tester. Um, it's, it's a totally different set of skills. So, um, you know, I, I have the, the, the benefit of working with Ryan Lynn for the past, oh, six years or so. He's one of the, arguably one of the best pen testers in the world. And, and, and just looking at his skill set and how he approaches problems, it's just, it's, it's completely different than the way I do. Um, and so I was, I was always good at, at unraveling the puzzle. And if I didn't know the answer to a specific data element I had and how it applied and what it meant, I, I, I can research. And I'm, I think that's a skill, right? I don't know everything, but I'm good at, at, at the Googles, right? So yeah. I can figure stuff out. Um, so I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm just not wired like a pen tester. Right? I don't know if it's military training. I don't know if it's you know, the way I was brought up, but I was, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a better investigator. Yeah. Gotcha. What would you uh, kind of define or, or just some of the folks that you view as being successful in the industry? Like what are, you mentioned some of the mentors, but what are some of the folks too that you think that, you know, really kind of taken not only their game up, but other folks they work with? Um, so it's a, it's a challenge, right? There's, I mean, there's a great quote. I don't remember where I read it, so I'm going to misquote it, but the general gist is you're, I mean, you're not a leader till you've built another leader underneath you. And I think that's, part of the success criteria that we have as investigators is, is, you know, solving cases is one thing and catching bad guys is awesome, but it's training that next generation. It's helping law enforcement understand what they're looking at. It's helping, um, 
students who are interested. It's helping people who go, how do I get there from here? Um, and, and really building their expertise and helping them to learn from your journey that I think really makes you successful. What was uh, some of the, I guess, best career advice or lessons that you received along the way? And like, when was it and who gave it to you? Uh, so it was, <laughs> this is it's kind of funny. It was probably five years ago. I was working in investigation at a police department. Um, and the chief was a, a gentleman named Terry Salt. Um, and he's still the chief of police in Hampton, Virginia. But uh, I remember pretty clearly he told me something. He said, look, if you're, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And so surround, your peop- surround yourself with people smarter than you, not necessarily more experienced. Mm-hmm. And, and as a leader, someone who, you know, I became a, a, you know, a director at Trustwave and then, you know, moving over here to, you know, to Newix, I've, I've always sought people who I know are smarter than I am. And, and I'm okay with that um, because I, I don't need to bring to the table what they bring to the table. I need to bring what I bring. And, and so that whole concept of a high-powered team where you can um, have the skills and abilities that everyone has and just being able to utilize those to their best potential. Mm-hmm. Right? That's got nothing to do with you as an individual, but it has to do with, it has to do with you as a, as a leader. Gotcha. Um, I'm assuming not everything's always been peachy keen along the way. So there's always been um, probably some failures that you've had along the way. Um, if you look back, you know, what, what are some of the things that you said yeah, God, that kind of, kind of wounded me at the time but set you up for future su- success? Um, yeah, I would say at, uh, you know, setting yourself up and, and understanding that you're not always going to get the right answer um, and, and, you know, leaving your ego at the door. Um, and it was tougher, I think, early on in my career because I felt like I always had to be right. And, and so that sort of came with um, some arrogance and, and honestly some hubris at times um, because I felt like I needed to be right in every situation. And that's, and that's just not the case, right? As an investigator, the end result needs to be correct. But the journey doesn't have to be, right? There's, there's always going to be twists and there's always going to be turns. Um, and it, it's important to let the data be the data, right? Don't formulate a theory about what you think happened and force, you know, the data and, and your interpretation of that data into your, um, into your hypothesis, but allow your hypothesis to evolve and, and, and truly treat it with the scientific methodology, right? Establish a working hypothesis and work to prove it wrong, not work to prove it right. Exactly. And, and so... I, I think I learned that early on by a few failures in my investigations, but once I, I kind of turned the corner there and thought, look, I'm not trying to be right here, I'm trying to be wrong. And if I can't prove myself wrong, then this data is, is solid. Mm-hmm. Along the way here, I've noticed, you know, certainly I've, I think you and I met at a forensic show probably in 2010, I mean, it was several years ago, and at that point you were speaking, and you've done a number of speaking engagements. You co-authored a book on, on Unix and Linux forensics. Um, at what point did you start trying to do things where you were giving back, and, kind of, and what kind of drove you to be kind of more of a participant uh, as far as giving back to the community? Yeah, so um, it's, I don't know, it was, it was earlier on than, than I, I think I was ready for. Um, and it really came when I when I started working on the Unix and Linux forensics book, and it was it was honestly it was my master's thesis in, in graduate school, and it was when I was working for Harlan, um, and he said, look, you should you know you should contact um, you should contact Syngress. Here's my publisher because this is great this is great content, and not everybody knows this. And so I just I thought, well, I'm new you know to the game. How could how could everyone not know this? I'm I'm right. the new guy. But it was just looking at. 
um, kind of the traditional corpus of evidence just through a new lens and fresh eyes. And, and, and maybe the eyes of a pen tester um, kind of helped me out in that regard. And so then I started blogging, right? So my blog was the digital standard for years and years. Um, and I, I stopped writing on that blog because then I started writing on the Newix blog. Um, but it's, you know, the same sort of content. Um, and then about... Oh, a year ago, I started working on my second book, and so that just came out wow, two months ago. Um, it's called Data Breach Preparation and Response, uh, co-authored with Kevin Fowler from Canada uh, and a couple of other authors that worked on that. Um, and then within the last oh, six months, I've become a, a professor of cybersecurity. Um, I'm an adjunct professor at the Southern Utah University, um, and so I'm part of the adjunct cadre that teaches their cybersecurity master's program. So obviously you don't make a lot of money <laughs> being a, an adjunct professor, but it's, uh, you know, like you said, it's a great opportunity to take people interested in the field and um, kind of get them ready and, and, and shape them and prepare them for what they're inevitably going to see in the field. Yeah, one of the I know one of the things that I got to know of your work was around the sniper forensic presentations and blogs. How did you come to pick that topic? And if you can kind of go in a little bit about what sniper forensics is, and is it still relevant after six, seven years of when you started talking about it? Yeah, it's uh, it's a funny story, right? So I'm I'm a huge police fan, not like the well, I like police the department, but the music. So oh, gotcha. um, so Sting wrote um, "Message in a Bottle," which is one of their most popular songs on the back of a bus, and so I wrote sniper forensics on a plane once um, because I was looking, I was on my way to an investigation and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to make this investigation go smoothly and I, and I want to knock this one out of the park. So I just started asking myself a bunch of questions about how do I perform data reduction? How do I take my, my sample from a hundred systems down to two systems or three systems? And what is it exactly I'm, that I'm looking for? What is you, you know, you can't just cross your fingers and hope to find evil, right? As Rob Lee likes to say, there's got to be some sort of indicators that set that data uh, apart from the data around it. And so then I just kind of wrote the sniper forensics methodology there. And, and then I did additional research on it, looking at things like Locard's exchange principle and Occam's razor and how they applied to investigative methodology. And it just started to make more and more sense. And so um, from there, it just evolved into kind of a full-blown methodology that targets, you know, specific data because data sets are getting so much bigger and you have cloud investigations now and it's not, you know, spinny, clicky hard drives anymore. You're looking at, at, at gigabytes and terabytes and petabytes even of data. And if you don't know what you're looking for and have a targeted methodology with success indicators, you are never, ever going to find what you're looking for or know when to stop. Um, and so it's sort of evolved uh, over the years now into a software product, which is part of why I joined Nuix, was to take the sniper forensics methodology and make it into a real thing. So with Nuix uh, adaptive security, what we're able to do is perform on the endpoint, perform very, very fast data reduction, just like the sniper forensics methodology was written to do. Um, only it does it now at a scale that's Know, 100,000 endpoints or whatever that you want to deploy, and the threshold of entry is so low because we've programmatically built in the decisions that the investigator would logically make. You know, someone who's been doing this a year can, or, or six months, honestly, can really be effective. Um, but it's based on the methodology that, like I said, we wrote in 2010, I think, and it's still uh, still very, very relevant today. If not, it sounds even more so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, kind of looking at the industry as a whole, um, 
you know, what, what kind of worries you most about the data, privacy, and security world now? And to note, I noticed on, on the blog, on the Newix blog, that you said you were, you were personally impacted by the OPM data breach. Yeah. Uh, so I know <laughs> that it, things can be kind of, uh, can hit close to home at times, but what, you know, what keeps you awake at night? Um, well, it's not the theft of my PII anymore, because that's long gone, <laughs> uh, along with that of my wife and my children. So, um, so I think the thing that, that, that honestly that keeps me awake is we're moving closer and closer to, to full integration of technology. Um, and, and what I mean by that is in every aspect of, of our lives. Like, I mean, sitting here, I've got a Fitbit on. I've got my iPhone in my pocket. Your, your partner here is on her iPhone. We have laptops. I mean, part of our... I don't think there's going to be any part of our world that isn't uh, have some sort of technology in it. Um, and so as we move to that level of, of full technology integration, um, the opportunities for, for crime and fraud and, and hacking are, are, are going to grow exponentially, right? The Internet of Things is, um, is, is just going to become more and more pervasive, more and more of an attack surface is going to be present. And so... I'm afraid of the of the of the nexus between physical crime and and cyber crime clashing, and it's it's going to happen. I, I mean, I know it is. We saw what in the news that a Tesla was able to be remote controlled from 12 miles away, uh, and so it's it's going to happen. Um, it's just I hope when it does happen, it's not some sort of catastrophic event, but it's coming. Right. Um, and if it uh, you know, as, 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 as security experts, we need to um, anticipate that. We need to look for opportunities to, to em, enable and empower other security experts to spot it, to stop it, to investigate it, uh, because that's, that's going to be our, our world. Yeah, do you think there's at this point that we're, we're kind of overly adopting some technology without thinking through all the risks that might come with it? Yeah, I think for sure. Um, there's a, another good quote. I remember this one this time, though. It was uh, Jeff Goldblum from uh, Jurassic Park when he's talking about, you know, creating dinosaurs from old DNA. And he says, just because we can do a thing doesn't mean we should do that thing. And, and I'm sure he was quoting someone else. But I, I think it's, it's true that um, the technology that we have is, is, is tremendously empowering as, uh, as a society and as individuals. But I don't think anyone's stopped to count the cost to think, what does this mean? What is this going to introduce? How could someone, you know, use this? I think there's such a push to be profitable. There's such a push to pay off VC money. There's such a push to be first to market that security becomes an afterthought, right? It's a, it's a bolt-on. And um, I think the eventual uh, manifestation of that is going to be, like I said, that thing that, that keeps me awake is that crossover between cybercrime and a physical you know, impact, loss of human life. Mm -hmm. Do you see that, that also potentially happening with, you know, more of the kinetic aspect when you, you have a military background, but seeing maybe the broader application of cyber warfare where it can actually tip that line. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a lot of talk of like the nations that can won't, and then there's the people that would can't at this point, but they're rapidly adopting to that technology, whether it be, uh, you know, outside of nation state actors, but terrorist groups that are getting more of this technology, how far we might be out from that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we're pretty close. You've got, you know, hostile nation states, failed nation states, um, you know, terrorist organizations. And I think for the most part, the hacker community and the are, are pretty um, are pretty altruistic, and so I don't think any of them would sell their services necessarily. Um, I mean, Anonymous is a great example, right? They're, they're very true to what they believe is, is right and wrong, and you don't see them arbitrarily just going off and, and, and willy-nilly hacking something, right? There's, you know, you may not agree with why they're doing it, but they have, you know, sort of a cause that they're rallying behind, and, and I don't think that anyone would sell those skills for 
um, for hostile purposes you know, or to, to cause loss of life. Um, it's more making statements. But, you know, who's to say that that's not already happening and there's not, you know, people who are learning how to, how to apply those skills in a, in a physically, um, you know, in, in a way that's going to manifest itself in a, in a physical way. Um, it's, it's probably going to happen sooner than, than we would all like. Sure. And we certainly see, you know, uh, you know, whether it be a country or different types of industries continue to try to build up and beef up uh, their defensive security. Uh, but what are some of the other industries that you see that are kind of vulnerable but may not think they are these days? I mean, we've certainly, again, finance and healthcare we know have a lot of effort, but I, I know you had a blog piece about legal being a good example and, and written on it. Um, and everything we've seen with the Panama Papers, are there other industries like legal that are maybe just the soft underbelly? Yeah, I think anyone that doesn't think they're a, a target is, is sort of disconnected from reality. Um, you know, I've said before, there's three types of organizations, those that have been breached, those that are currently breached, and those that are about to be. And you fall into one of those categories without, without question, without exception. And so it doesn't matter where you're at geographically. It doesn't matter if you're Australian or Canadian or Swiss or you know, Mexico or the U.S., right? If you've got something to steal, there's somebody to steal it. Um, and, and so that's, that is a common theme. Um, you know, in, in working investigations for close to 18 years, every victim I've ever worked with um, has sort of said the same thing, right? I never thought it would happen to me. And it does, right? Bad things happen to good people all the time. Um, and so, you know, industries that have historically been hit, payment card data, you know, financial services, et cetera, will, I mean, they're going to continue to be hit, right? It's low-hanging fruit, and until it's not a target, it'll be a target. Um, but other industries like SCADA, um, personal management and records management for police departments, jail systems, um, you know, the thing with OPM that Brian Krebs mentioned in an article a couple weeks ago was if the OPM data could be harvested, um, it could also be manipulated. So someone who shouldn't have a security clearance may now have one, and that could include hostile nation-state actors. Um, or someone who should have a security clearance now has it revoked. Um, you know, we also saw a compromise recently of the anti-doping systems um, that are maintained by the IOC. And so you've got athlete information and you've got, you know, doping statistics and world record information. I mean, this is the information age and it's everywhere. And so I think that criminals can really be as creative as they want to be. And the data to support the crime is there and it's probably not being protected very well. Mm -hmm. and, and when it comes to kind of protection, it's it's. You know, from my view, and I'm sure you probably shared it, and I know from reading things, it's not always something about what you can buy, but it's some of the soft skills. Um, and that kind of continues to be a challenge that we're talking about in the U.S. Some reports are saying there's over 200,000 open jobs in the U.S. for cybersecurity, possibly a million globally. Um, this still kind of seems to be a challenge to get the right people trained. And, and wh why do you see that to still be a kind of a hurdle? What are some of the things that we need to do kind of either globally or nationally to, to get over some of this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, really, I, I think Target was the was the pinnacle um, of, of that sort of uphill battle. So, I mean, those of us that have been in security for a while have felt like we've been, you know, the lone prophet in the woods in, or in the, in the desert eating honey and, you know, wearing camel hair saying, you know, repent, repent. And, and we just weren't taken seriously. Like, ah, you security guys, you all think the sky's falling. And then after Target, everyone sort of went, ah, maybe the sky is falling. And then you got mandatory breach disclosure notification laws in the U.S. Have, have, have really started to take shape, even though there's a patchwork of 47 of them. I mean, they still compel an organization to disclose once they've been compromised. And so you've got this massive, um, you know, spike in, in breach awareness. 
Um, and so what that's done is that's created in those organizations um, the uh, you know, awareness that this is an issue. It's made it to the board level. It impacts customer confidence. It impacts market share. It impacts M&A. It impacts valuation and stock prices. And so now this is a, there's a price tag attached to it. And so that's sort of driven these organizations to open up these cybersecurity positions. But so that doesn't mean overnight there's enough people to fill the positions, right? You have a higher demand, but you still got the same number of people doing it. And so now there's universities like SUU. You, um, some other big ones that are, are ha- that have these programs, but just because a student is educated in it doesn't mean they're experienced in it, right? It's you know you still have that that chair time that you have to put in and that investigative experience and security countermeasures experience that you can only get in the field. And so I think it's a great place to be. I think there's a lot of jobs, but I think there's going to be an impetus on software companies, honestly, like Nuix, to be able to lower that threshold of capability to build software that's a true intelligence multiplier that will enable the people using it um, to be as effective as the, the folks that have been around for 15, 18 years. Mm-hmm. So kind of between instant response, forensics, pen testing, auditing, which of the skill sets do you think people or maybe is... You know, companies or individuals need to kind of refine the most or, or the most needed? Um, so I think as individuals, right, there's lots of folks who have technical acumen. And even graduating from college, you know, they may have gone to a, a very technical school. Ross, Rochester Institute of Technology has kicked out some great students. Carnegie Mellon kicks out some great students. Um, I know George Washington does as well. But what they miss is the ability to translate what they're doing into to a non-technical audience. And, and that's very challenging, right? Because if you can't, at the end of the day, you have to communicate what you did and why you did it to somebody, whether it's in a report, whether it's to a judge and jury, whether it's to um, you know, police officers, whatever the case may be, someone's got to read about what you did. So being able to communicate that effectively in writing in a manner that allows the reader to truly understand what you did is very, very challenging, and it's not a skill set a lot of individuals possess. As organizations, what we see is they spend money on tools and they spend money on technology and they'll hire some people, but then they won't spend money on training. And so the people are looking at the output from the tools and they can't make a connection between what they're seeing and real world activity. Right? Target and Home Depot were both perfect examples of that. They saw the alerts but couldn't correlate that to what that meant. Right? So how does that alert correlate to actual human activity, that, that connection just isn't there. And so there's going to need to be some more training that takes place. Kind of like, you know, when I was in the, in the military, I bet we, I, I bet I put 10,000 rounds downrange with my sidearm and with a rifle because I was training for that one time that I might have to draw my weapon. Um, I never did, but it still didn't top, stop me from putting 10,000 rounds downrange. And so I think cybersecurity uh, firms and, and teams within companies need to adopt a similar um, training regimen where they train and they train and they train and they train and they train because someday they're going to have to use those skills. So this once a year stuff, you know, that we've been seeing are tabletop exercises. That's, that's 10 years ago, right? It, they have got to adopt a, a much more rigid, um, hardcore training regimen or else the, you know, we're just going to continue to get owned as a, you know, kind of as a, a industry. Yeah. I know you have several different certifications from CISP and, and other uh, forensics and instant response certifications. You know, certifications in the industry can always be kind of a, a touchy subject with some people. What are your thoughts on certifications that are there value in them? Should people look at them or consider them? Yeah, it's uh, 
I, I think they're valuable. Um, but uh, I mean, the caution is always, you know, having a certification means you can sit through a course and you can ingest a corpus of knowledge and then you can regurgitate that on an exam. Um, and there's some other ones that are more practical, like the OSCP, where it requires hands-on um, that are good. But at the same time, that's, that's a controlled environment and that's a, a finite corpus of information. And so I think to look at them as... Um, you know, maybe additional capabilities to an applicant. But I've also seen, you know, people in the industry who have no certifications who are phenomenal um, because taking these, you know, these courses and paying for the certifications isn't cheap. And, and sometimes, you know, folks in the industry just don't have the money or they haven't been in a company that's, that's put, you know, training at the forefront of, of importance. And so they haven't had the chance to go take a test. And I don't think that should be a limiting factor. Um, I would really just look into anyone you're going to hire and get someone technical to question them because the presence or lack of a certification is is no more indicative of expertise than the presence or lack of a college degree. Mm-hmm. As a hiring manager, um, you there's different types of certifications, different types of skill sets that you evaluate when you're looking for the right kind of candidates. And as you've built several different teams in different places, what are some of the types of things that stand out as candidates or things that people might have that you really look for? Yeah. So, um, it's, you know, I've helped build teams both at, at spider labs and and now at Nuix. And I think one of the dominant characteristics we look for is, is something that, you know, Cindy Murphy from, you know, from the Madison, Wisconsin Police Department uh, had identified was called the Chihuahua on the pork chop. And it's, it's, you know, it's sort of tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it's indicative of someone who's, who's relentless in their education, who wants to know about the technology and about the investigation or about how to pen test so badly that, they become singularly focused on that and they just won't let go, right? Kind of like a chihuahua on a pork chop. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that's not to say that, you know, college degrees aren't important because I have one and I teach at a university. And so I do think they're important, but they're, I think they need to be understood for what they are. And that is, um, you know, a a limited amount of knowledge um, based on what that program offers. And, And, you know, when you hire someone that's a, a new graduate or you hire someone that's that's new to the industry right i would really look for someone who is that chihuahua on the pork chop who wants nothing more than to be good at what they do and to work hard to do it and they'll do it in their own time and they'll do it on their days off and they'll do it in their sleep and and uh, every new hire that we've come across that's had that characteristic has really worked out well for us yeah sometimes trying to find those people that also think you know it's cliche to say a little bit outside of the box um, but and you mentioned before, there's almost kind of a, a non-industry book that had made an impact on you early on, and particularly now, I'm sure, in, in management. What are some of the different non-industry type things that you think apply to information security, of, whether it be books or TV, media, that, that kind of influence the way people might think that would be helpful in cybersecurity? Yeah, so there's a, I mean, there's a couple of them. Obviously, I wrote a, a, a white paper recently called The Human Vulnerability. And so I think understanding people is, is, is very, very important, you know, because at the end of the day, we're, we're all human beings. Attackers are humans and pen testers are humans and forensicators are humans and CFOs and CEOs are all humans. And so understanding human behavior, understanding cognitive biases, understanding um, uh, how those things, you know, play into the business world is, is really important. Um, also understanding how to write and how to speak, um, being able to communicate your points, um, succinctly 
um, and accurately is is tremendously important. Um, whether you're trying to convince you know your boss to buy new firewalls or you're trying to convince a jury while someone is is guilty of a crime, you have to be able to articulate. Um, the specifics of that instance in in a manner they can understand, right? So understand your target audience, know who they are, um, and be able to communicate effectively with them to the appropriate level of um, of technological advancement, right? A, a judge and, and, and jury are not going to understand deeply technical concepts, but engineers will. And so, you know, know your audience. Uh, and then I think is kind of the third one on that is is look to other areas of uh, industries to figure out what can be applicable, right? These these problems we're having in in security right now aren't aren't, aren't unique to security, right? So um, I did some research once on H. W. Heinrich's theory of accident causality um, as it pertained to um, accidents in industrial manufacturing um, in the 20s and 30s. And so some of the problems that we're facing were also faced in that industry, and they figured out a way to you know to get around it by removing human intersection points and, and replacing that with automation. And so I think we're going to see some of that same wisdom find its way into security where we're relying too much on, on technology and not enough on human interaction with that technology in a smart way. Because if technology alone could have solved the problem, we would have solved it 20 years ago. And if human beings alone could have solved the problem, we would have done it 20 years ago. And so I think we're moving to that point where everyone sort of realizes it's a marriage between technology and people that's going to be the most impactful. Mm-hmm. So kind of along those those thought lines, what are the or what is that thing in cybersecurity? What's that thing that makes you want to scream? The emperor has no clothes. That one piece of bad advice that you might hear over and over again. Oh man! Um, <laughs> I know I'm only making you pick one, which I, is not okay. fair. Um, so as much as I love firewalls, right? A lot of um, executives have a um, it's it's a cognitive bias called. Um, Parkinson's law of triviality and and basically what that or bike shedding but basically what it means is when presented with an overly complex corpus of of information um, the individual will select the easiest one to understand and so when you're talking about complex countermeasures as it pertains to you know enterprise security usually non-technical people will focus on things like IDS IPS uh, antivirus and firewalls because it's easy to understand and so they apply an uh, disproportionate level of importance to those, you know, sort of three um, areas of, of defense. Whereas if you ask a hacker um, how many times antivirus or a firewall prevents them from gaining access to the target, they'll say either never or almost never. And so I think there needs to be a level setting of what is truly an effective countermeasure versus what is perceived to be an effective countermeasure, because I don't think they quite match up. Mm-hmm. And kind of related question, what, what do you find yourself giving the most advice on to folks in the industry you know, about what they should be doing about cybersecurity? What's the one thing that you find yourself repeating yourself over and over again as good advice? Yeah, the, it's, it, it's funny. I read this somewhere else, but I, I loved it, so I, I, I say it now. But it's, it's you can't suck at patching. Um, it's it's the blocking and tackling of IT, and it's making sure you have patches deployed. It's making sure that you're not, um, you know, putting systems out on the internet uh, or internet-facing systems that have known vulnerabilities or known issues. I mean, over and over again, we think, you know, we see things like like V Bulletin Board and and websites utilizing that get compromised. There was a compromise. Oh, I forget who it was, but a couple weeks ago, um, that the organization had left a web server that had been decommissioned 
still in production and it still had access to a production database. No one was using it, but it was still web facing. And so that, that basic IT hygiene, the basics of blocking and tackling, patching, you know, doing penetration testing, making sure your network topology isn't, you know, isn't a big fat class C and, and making sure access to your critical data is, is understood and known and, and, you know, restricted appropriately with user access control. I mean, that's just, it's one one and it's it's shocking how many organizations globally are just bad at it. Yeah, we, we often see it in, in some of the games we do where it's it's the basics are not done. Inventory control, patching, mm-hmm. poor land management, and you can throw a million different products in the play in, in yeah. the way, but it's not gonna fix that underlying problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a couple of just more rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, but it's kinda of, you know, Throughout your, your kind of day-to-day, what are some of your kind of security habits? What are some of the things that you do personally to try to keep you and your information safe? Um, so with, with my stuff, much to my wife's chagrin, right, we use password managers. She hates it. Yeah, my wife too. Because yeah. <laughs> she wants her password to be the same password on everything, and I, I don't let her. Um, so I forced her to use a password manager, and she, uh, much to her chagrin, it's effective, but she doesn't like it at all. What is, uh, I think, okay, what is one common misconception people have about you? About me? About you. Oh, man, I have no idea. Uh, that, I'm, uh, that I'm super technical, right? I, I know I'm, I don't think I am. I think there's people far more technical than I am that are, are much better. I, I think I understand enough about the technology to be able to um, answer questions about it or to be able to, you know, give advice about it. So even though, you know, I've, I've written a couple books and, and blogs and stuff, it's, it's all about research. I'm not, I'm not exceedingly intelligent. <laughs> like I said, if I am, I'm in the wrong room. If you can look back and if you could time travel and, and kind of talk to your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give them? <laughs> uh, so if I could time travel, um, I would make myself learn Linux sooner. Um, I would make myself learn a coding language. I can't script at all. I can't write in anything. When I was 10, I could write in basic, and that's the only language I can code in. So I would have learned either Ruby or Python early on in my career um, and gotten good at it you know, to the point where I could write my own scripts. So, um, yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use air quotes in this next uh next question which is great for for radio and podcasting but if you had to pick one tool and i'm using tool in the air quotes for cybersecurity, what would it be and why okay so the shameless plug would be i would use nuix <laughs> because it's the most comprehensive nah, it's it's not a shameless plug it, it is a comprehensive tool it is you know we sort of joke and we call it the fubu of the cyber world because it's for us by us right we're it's by investigators for investigators and so we've really done a lot of work over the last Oh, probably two years to try to incorporate 20 years of investigative methodology and theory and knowledge into the tool. Um, and that includes, uh, you know, a lot of pen test stuff. Like I said, Ryan Lynn is on our team who helps write EdderCap. Um, so now Nuix can ingest, you know, TCP dumps and PCAPs and, and break them down the same way like Wireshark would or, or Network Miner. Um, you can also, you know, look at obfuscated log files. So if an attacker is using Base64 encoding, which is common in SQL injection attacks, Nuix now will decode that on the fly, right? And it'll show you both the decoded and the encoded version. So a lot of little tools and tricks that we would have to write Perl scripts for, or we'd have to do, well, someone would write me a Perl script because I can't code. Um, but, you know, someone would have to code or you have to have a specialized tool for, you know, now all of that is available in Nuix. So it's, you know, we try to reduce the number of times you have to alt tab. Mm-hmm. 
I guess also looking at there's you know, we were talking about a lot of people kind of starting out in the industry as you people are kind of getting their feet under them. What would be the one piece of advice you would give to someone kind of really starting out in cybersecurity? Um, it's yeah, someone and I got asked that question in, in Australia this last week as well. Um, and I would say put in chair time um, because that's the only constant you have. You don't know where you're going to work. You don't know if you're going to have a training budget. You don't know if you're going to be able to go to a, a SANS class or go to like an SUU to get a, a, a degree in security. But you can control, you know, the amount of chair time that you put in. And there's a lot of forensics tools and, and pen testing tools that are free. There's a lot of opportunity to buy hard drives on eBay and image them with with free tools and to perform, you know, forensics on those. Um, you can download virtual machines. There's SANS challenges. There's all sorts of stuff that you can do that doesn't have a price tag associated with it. But if you're passionate and you want to be that chihuahua on the pork chop, it's it's really a good way to, to separate yourself from, you know, other candidates to show why, you know, you need to be chosen for whatever job you're applying for. And kind of a tail end question of that is that sometimes people find themselves three years, five years, 10 years in their career in cybersecurity and kind of feel like in a rut. How would you kind of approach maybe that same type of question of how, what advice would you give them as they're kind of maybe trying to find their new way? Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, cybersecurity is an interesting career choice because there's so many disciplines within it, right? Even within the discipline of security, there's, there's post-mortem forensics, there's incident response, there's malware reverse engineering, there's application security coding, uh, there's network pen testing, there's application pen testing. I mean, there's a, a, a multitude of pathways. And so I would say if you're in, you know, cybersecurity, are you in the right discipline within that, you know, th that bigger umbrella? And if you're not, find the one, you know, that you're most passionate about. And it'll usually be the one, doesn't matter if you're the best at it or you have the highest skill in that area, it's the one you love the most. And, uh, you know, it's the difference between jumping out of bed and rolling out of bed, right? Find the thing you want to jump out of bed and do. And that, I mean, I used to dream about cases in the middle of the night and I would wake up and have solved a case or have found a new piece of evidence that I wasn't, that I was, I was literally dreaming about it. So find that thing that your brain just doesn't want to get rid of and, and make that your specialty. Well, um, that's great, and thanks for uh, being on, being on the show. And where can uh, where can people find you today? And what what are some, actually before that? I mean, what are some of the things that you're up to these days? And what if you have been writing and you mentioned a book? So feel yeah, free to plug so, away. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I so we just finished a new book. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Data Breach Preparation and Response. Um, the the cover author is Kevy Fowler, um, who's a fantastic author. He's a he's a friend of mine at KPMG up in Canada. Um, I'm a back author. I think I wrote three chapters and tech edited another two. Um, but it's a really, really good work, and uh, I'm, I'm proud of the I'm, uh, of the team that put that together. Um, I have a newsletter that I put out every Friday called for all the Archer fans in the audience called Stir Friday, um, and we take a uh, oh usually between five or six um, articles about cybersecurity from that week, and, and we kind of break them down into play-by-play because -play, what you hear in the media isn't always true. Um, there's technical details that are left out. There's assumptions about the law and about how you know a, a, a particular breach or a particular you know court decision is, is broken down, and and so um, I provide commentary on that. You know, some explanations about what things mean. Um, I have guest authors that are you know friends of mine that are attorneys and are experts in in, in cyber litigation and legislation that help us work through those. So that's pretty cool. If you want to get on that, just email me. Um, I'm yeah, in. I'll put I'll put all your contact and uh, this stuff in the show notes pages cool. too. Um, 
and I'm going to be at the Sector next month. I'm keynoting, which is kind of fun. The opening keynote to the conference uh, in this 10th anniversary, um, just Sector.ca. Uh, but the opening keynote is Edward Snowden. Um, he's going to be giving it from via Skype from Russia. Uh, but I am the closing keynote, and so I have to figure out what I'm going to do with that because that's so Hard much act to follow. <laughs> it is, and it's such a great opportunity that I can't uh, I can't blow it. So I've got to do something memorable. I think I'll get an Edward Snowden t-shirt. That's a good, yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then like hashtag thanks for the job or something because, mm-hmm. you know, we exist in investigations to prevent stuff like that. So I don't know how I'm going to play with that. Um, and that's uh, that's about it, just being a husband and being a dad. And, you know, I got a great wife and I've got great kids. And when uh, I'm not being a CISO, I'm being a dad, going to softball games with my daughter and playing video games with my son. And, yeah, we just have a good time. Great. All right. Well, I I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Uh, Thanks for your time today. Appreciate Appreciate it, it, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.